Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. I guess we could already go home after this this morning. My goodness, this is so good, huh? Yeah, so, all right. Hebrews, welcome to those of you, by the way, that are new here. My name's Alex, I'm one of the pastors. And so we are replanting our church, refocusing, reorienting. I'm glad you're here, glad you're comfortable. Um, We're not here to perform, we are the children of God. We're here to enjoy being in the presence of Jesus together. And so today we're continuing our journey through this absolutely unbelievable epistle known as Hebrews. And so if you haven't been tracking with us, you can go back online and catch up uh, with where we've been so far. And I, and I would encourage you to do so just because this opening of the, of the book is so unbelievably rich. Um, this week on Wednesday morning, I was studying and I was driven to real just excitement and praise as I was in study. And then on Friday, when I went back to write the second half of the sermon, uh, I was driven to a whole lot of tears, just a slobbery, snotty, unbelievable, ugly cry mess. And I'm so glad none of you were there for that. So, um, but the word of God, as the writer tells us later, is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to pierce between your soul and your spirit. It can get all the way down between bone and marrow. The word of God, if you're ever reading it or you're listening to it and you feel like, uh, I haven't talked to Alex lately, but it feels like he's talking directly to me. You ever have that moment in church? Yes, that's called the spirit of God at work through his living and active word. And so I hope you came expecting to hear from God today through his word because he's, he's, he's revealed something unbelievable in this. And so God help me preach it faithfully. So a quick note on the background of Hebrews. One, uh, the author of this letter remains unknown. Two, it's written before 70 AD, which means the temple is still standing. Uh, Three, we don't know the recipients exactly. We don't have an exact name of who who is reading this letter. But we do know that we find this letter at home in an urban center where people, followers of Jesus, are being pressured on all sides to apostatize, to abandon the faith, and to go back to one of two things. First, there's pressure from the outside. The, the Jews themselves are pressuring the Christians to return to practicing the law and all of its obedience and all of the ordinances to follow it to the letter, right? That's one, that's one side of the pressure. But the pressure is also coming from the Greco-Roman world in which the church found itself. And there's a lot of pressure there too. You see, in the Greco-Roman society, religion and government were all tied together as well. The Roman pantheon actually had something to do with everyday life. And the marketplace, trade, commerce, education, everything. 
you were required as a citizen of Rome to consistently pay homage to the gods, salute the gods, participate in the sacrificial system. If there's a festival going on and you're on your way to the grocery, your job as a Roman citizen is to stop and honor those gods and pay homage. And if you don't, the government is required to come down on you harshly. That's just how the world worked. So Christians found themselves in this unbelievable pressure from the Jews to return to the law only and to abandon Jesus as the Messiah. And there's also the pressure from the Romans. You need to salute our gods and participate. And Christians are going, oh, we're, forbidden. we're forbidden to do both of those. We're now following Jesus as Lord, not Caesar. Jesus is our Lord. And Jesus is one with Yahweh God. We're in a hard place to say the least. And so the Christians wouldn't bow. And they were also known for uh, rejecting pluralism. They were known for rejecting syncretism. These ideas that they say, yeah, Jesus is just one of the other gods. All they had to do, by the way, to dodge persecution is this. Just take Jesus, knock him down one peg, and make him equal with all the other gods in the pantheon, and they dodge persecution entirely. But they wouldn't. Why? Because syncretism cheapens the gospel. Christians who understand who Jesus is will never demote Jesus even to being one with or equal with someone like a Caesar. They just wouldn't bend. But the pressure was on, and so many were tempted and being pressured to abandon the faith. And the writer of the epistle of the he to the Hebrews is urging them, pleading with them to remain faithfully present to God, to not drift away, to not neglect their salvation. And how are they going to do it? Day by day, encouraging one another. Day by day, fixing their eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of their salvation. That's what's going on in in, in, in this particular letter. This is because Jesus is not an idea. Jesus is not a suggestion. Jesus is not just a religious alternative. Jesus is the Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate, resurrected from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God, and he will return to judge the living and the dead. That is the God of the Christian. Jesus is better. Jesus has no equal. Jesus has no rival. Nothing, nothing threatens Jesus' victory today. That's what Christians profess and boldly confess about who we follow. So the first four verses of chapter 2 was telling us, don't neglect your salvation. Pay attention. Pay attention. Don't drift away. And even throughout the book of Hebrews, there's five warnings. And as they're warned, the writer will consistently say things like, hey, um, I know you're God's people, but don't neglect your salvation. Remember all the Hebrews who died in the wilderness? Just because you're chosen doesn't mean you hit cruise control on your sanctification. Make sense? Yes. 
So, there's, so this is the plea again and again and again. Respond appropriately to the grace of God. So for Christians, when we read Paul, sometimes we can go, hmm, but I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I'm good, right? And the writer of the Hebrews goes, yeah, sure. So live like that. Don't opt out. Don't neglect your salvation. If you feel the willies as you read some of these warnings, you're supposed to. Like, God, I don't feel so eternally secure all of a sudden. Well, you are eternally secure in Christ for sure. But they're writing in such a way as to make you go, oh, am I in? Peter would say, make your calling and your election sure. Pay close attention to these things. Don't drift. This letter serves as smelling salts <laughs> to wake up some of us who drift off. So that's how the book has opened. Now, here we go. Verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we're speaking. All right. So remember in chapter 1, we learned that Jesus is creator. He's superior to all of creation. He's exalted above the angels. And this writer of, of Hebrews goes, it's not to angels that God has subjected the world to come. You know, what, what does that mean? There's a world to come? What's that like? You'll have to read the end of Revelation to find out. But the last two chapters of the Bible are unbelievable. And we might just need to preach through the book of Revelation after we finish Hebrews. Maybe that's what we'll do. But um, the, are you down? Y'all want to do that? Let's do Revelation. That would actually be great. There's one vote. We're in. Um, okay. So the world to come is not subjected to angels. The world to come, all of creation will be made new again. And that's not subject to an angel or to a military. All of creation is going to be subjected to our King Jesus. So, then the writer now moves to quoting Psalm chapter 8. And I mean, he kind of quotes it. Here's what we read. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Okay, so this psalm was written by David about a thousand years before Jesus. This psalm made it into Israel's hymn book. It was what they would sing week by week in the synagogue. And as David penned this particular psalm, it's, he's, he's immersing himself in, he's, he's, um, he's reflecting on Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 are the creation narratives. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God speaks, and God brings everything into being. And as God speaks, that word, even in Hebrew, deber, meaning that God has creative force behind his words, that when we talk, maybe things happen. <laughs> when God talks, universes come into being. David is looking around, and he's considering 
all of creation, and he's blown away that God would know his name, much less call him his own. He's looking around, around the city of Jerusalem, and he looks beyond. He sees waterfalls. He sees mountains and lakes and rivers and streams. He considers the stars, the heavens above, animals all in the sea and flying in the sky. David is blown away. David would fit in well in Seattle, honestly. I mean, truly. There's a reason why we like camping. There's a reason why we like hiking. There's a reason why we like getting out on the water. There's a reason why. We like to know that we're not in charge. There's something that happens to us as we're looking at creation. And so we're looking at creation and we're feeling small. And imagine if David had access to some of the knowledge that we have now about creation. What if David knew that there's 330 million stars in our galaxy and there's 330 million galaxies that we know about? What would David have written? Maybe the same thing? I don't know. What if David knew that there's 130 million cells in your retina? What if he knew this kind of stuff going, that's what blew David out of the water, looking at creation going, look at how powerful you are, God. Who is man and woman that you would think of even? Think that our name would come across your desk. That is, that's beyond me. And so then he goes, and that you would put everything in subjection to Adam and Eve. Remember, to have dominion over the world? That's what's going on. Who is man that you're mindful of him? Have you found yourself, by the way, in those moments asking that question? Who am I that you would consider me, that you would think about me? Not worshiping nature or trying to connect with Mother Earth, but looking at nature and seeing that Mother Earth actually points far beyond to Father God, our Creator. Have you found yourself there? Summer's just around the corner, and as it is, maybe Psalm 8 might be a place for you to camp out devotionally. So. If you go and you read Psalm 8, you'll notice that the writer of Hebrews actually left a line out, and that's on purpose. The Psalm reads like this, you've made him for a little while lower than the heavenly beings, the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. Great. Here's the part the writer of Hebrews leaves out. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. Why leave that part out about Adam and Eve having dominion over all of creation? Because he's not talking about Adam and Eve over here in Hebrews. He leaves that Adam and Eve part about having dominion out by design because he's now reading Psalm chapter 8 Christologically. He's reading it through the lens of the person and the work of Jesus. So that means that the writer understands that, the, that Jesus is virgin born that Jesus is creator, that Jesus has now resurrected from the dead, and so he can't not read Jesus as he reflects on Psalm chapter 8. Who has dominion over all of creation? Oh, Jesus, because we seem to have lost some dominion in the fall. Isn't that amazing? I think so. So, now you can notice the Christmas story. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. Remember this in Luke chapter 2? Jesus laying in the trough. Angels appear in their glory. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. But then 
the verse continues, or the writer continues, now in putting everything in subjection to him, that is Jesus, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So Jesus is now high and exalted over all of creation, but the writer says, but we currently don't see everything in subjection to Jesus. Yes and amen. Yes and amen. We look around and we go, yeah, uh, we do need EMTs. We do need firefighters. We do need police officers. We need military. We need protection. We need, we, we need, we need doctors. We need dentists and lawyers. We need people to help us maintain broken creation. Not everything's in subjection to Jesus just yet. Not the way that we know it's on its way. There is a returning Jesus in which all things will be made new and things will be put right as they were in the Garden of Eden. That's what we're longing for and looking forward to. So I love the Christian faith's confession right here. Yes, our king is resurrected and reigning and ruling already. Yes, but not everything is in subjection to him. Not the way, not the way it's going to be. Not the way. And we go, why not? Why not go ahead and just do it now, Jesus? Peter says, so that some more could come to repentance. Our God is so patient. He will wait on you. He will wait. He has waited. Oh, what a patient God. Not everything is in subjection. So while we wait for that glorious day... At the return of Jesus, what do we see? The writer says, we see him. We see Jesus. Who, <laughs> for a little while, 30 years, was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus. There's the first time his name appears in the letter crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by grace, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So some of you, if you went to college, maybe in your undergrad or in your grad work, you might have studied uh, in the field of anthropology. You might have had an anthropology course somewhere along the way. And in anthropology, there's four, five, six disciplines within anthropology that, that the field breaks into sociocultural anthropology, archaeological anthropology. There's a few. Well, when it comes to theology, theology, missiologists actually dive into the fields of anthropology as well. Missiologists being people that missionary studying folks dive into studying anthropology. And theology actually has, there's a way of going about doing anthropology. Now, just let me, it's kind of nerdy for a moment, but I'm telling you, blew my mind. It blows my mind this morning. Here's, here's how it works. Mark put this together for me. I'm going to try to not break this. Oh, this is so light. Okay. <laughs> All right. Ooh. All right. So in theological anthropology, we talk about, we talk about cultures. Um, in, in cultures, there are shared vision, language, values, there's laws, there's rules, so on, right? We have cultures. There's a way in which we go about carrying out life in our culture. Well, here's how the Bible depicts cultures. And, and, the, and one more 
nerdy word, is done through ontology. Ontology is like the study of the mode of being, right? So here's how it works out theologically, okay? Culture A, Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, shared vision, language, and value, goals. There's a way they do things in the Trinity. I love thinking about the Trinity as a culture. They do things a certain way. They think a certain way about each other. And if you want to just know one thing as to why God is the happiest being in the universe, here's the secret. At the center of himself is somebody else. So every time Jesus is talking, he's always like, I'm about my father, I'm about my father, I'm about my father. Every time you see the father talking, he's like, I'm about my son, I'm about my son, I'm about my son. You want to know why God's happy? It's because his mind is on somebody else. Wow, what a way to be. There's ontology. Culture A, Trinity. Okay, culture B, angels, shared language, shared vision, Remember a couple weeks ago, the angels where we, we, I laid out, (laughs) prostrate. There's a vision. There's a value in angel culture. Culture C, human culture. Human culture. Okay. So when the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, that Jesus is creator... He's here. Peter picks up on God did not send an angel to die for you. Somebody in the Trinity left culture A, comes all the way down to culture C. Clothed in human flesh. But as you read Philippians 2, go read the hymn. What does it say? Have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself and became a man, and he became obedient even unto death, even what? Culture D, death on a cross. Culture D, you know what that is? Slave. Jesus came as the lowest of the lowest of the lowest of the lowest. He died a slave's death. Roman citizens weren't even allowed to speak about crucifixion because of the deep shame associated with it. This is what Jesus did for you. This is what Jesus did for this world. Not on our best day, but on our worst day. That he would relinquish equality with God, put on human flesh, and not be born in a palace with a pharaoh or wander in a courtyard like a Caesar? Oh, Jesus comes down as a slave and he starts washing people's feet. <laughs> what, what is, what's he doing? He's teaching you how to become a whole human. Yeah, that's amazing. Okay, listen to this, Richard Bauckham. I'll never get the first time I read How to Read the Bible Politically by Richard Bauckham, an old English theologian. I'll never forget these words. It jumped off the page, and it still blows my mind. Listen to this. As we think about Jesus dying for our sins, that he might taste death for everyone, listen to this. 
Crucifixion was and had to be offensively public. So much more resolutely it, was it banished from the literature and culture in which the Roman Empire celebrated its glory. Great generals like Julius Caesar, the great provincial governors like Pliny, who regularly ordered crucifixions, wrote up their memoirs with never a mention of the fact. It was not that they wished, it was not what they wished to remember or be remembered for. However, a second reason why ancient literature rarely dwelt on crucifixion reinforces the first. Listen, the people who were crucified were not people who mattered. Crucifixion was for the lower classes, foreigners, slaves. It was the penalty for political crimes against the state, for violent robbery, and for rebellious slaves. It maintained the authority of the state and the structure of a slave-owning society. It secured peace and prosperity for the majority by barbarous treatment of others. Listen to this. Crucifixion could be forgotten because it was a way of forgetting people. A way of excluding from society those who would disturb its conscience or its security. A way of denying humanity to, quote, others. A way of reducing their humanity to carry on. The illusion of a civilized society had to be maintained by forgetting its victims. Crucifixion was a way of removing them, rendering them to nothing. And so that they might be well and truly forgotten, crucifixion itself was not discussed. Do you see that before the foundation of the world, Jesus was intending to come down here? Do you know that crucifixion is not just about torture and putting someone to death? Crucifixion is a way of erasing you from human history because Pliny and Cicero outlawed it from being even spoken about in public. Do you know what Jesus did for you? Jesus is saying, I'll be forgotten for you. I'll be erased for you. I'll go into nothingness for you. I'll never even exist so that you might come into being. This is what Jesus did for Christians. How is he great? What kind of savior, what kind of king goes and stoops like this? Only the king of kings. That's the king who was crowned. And so then you go back and you read it and you go, oh, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor crowned. Why? Because the death was not the end of him. He was crowned with glory and honor. If you read the rest of the Philippian hymn, what does it say? That at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth would bow and confess Jesus to be Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's your God. What a Savior, church. Isn't this good news for our city today? We have a Savior who did not just stoop down and become a king in Rome. He stooped to the lowest. So lest you think for one minute or believe the lie of the devil or some other critic or some family member or someone on the internet this week that something has separated you from the love of God, I'm telling you, nothing 
in all of creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is good news. If you're not a Christian today, I'm imploring you, I'm begging you, I plead with you, place your faith in Jesus. Give Jesus your sin. And just, I, you gotta hear this, this is not a bartering religion. <laughs> you can't afford this. I don't care who you are. Bezos, you got nothing on this culture. You can't buy your way in. You can't be good enough to get into the family of God. You can't obey Moses well enough for God to look your way. This has to be a one-way love. This has to be a religion of pure grace alone, that he might taste death for everyone. By what means? Why? By the grace of God. Grace meaning unmerited favor. Or maybe better put, ill-merited favor. That Jesus would die for you, that Jesus would hang on a cross for you, and that Jesus would triumph in resurrection and give to you his righteousness and give to you his Holy Spirit that you might walk with him all the days of your life. And you might be sitting there going, well, what does this have to do with my practical life? That's amazing that God would do that for me. How is that practical? How is this not practical? How does this change the way you view your work on Monday? What kind of mentality do you go into work with tomorrow? How does this impact your marriage? How does this impact how you raise kids? How does this impact how we have friends? How does this impact recreation? How does this impact all that we do? How does it not? Let this mind be in you, this attitude that was in Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself made himself nothing to bring you in. So Jesus is willing to say, I'll be erased for you so that your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life. I'll go into nothingness so that you can come into the kingdom of God. This is how much your Savior loves you, and it's probably why eternity is going to take us eternity to get our minds around what God has done to redeem creation. Oh, and side note, he didn't do this for angels that rebelled. He did this for you. That's why Peter says, these things, your salvation, are things into which angels long to look. They look at us and go, he did that for them? <sighs> oh, don't neglect your salvation. It's great. It's great. Okay. That's literally all I have written. Okay. Let's, um, let's, um, let's pray. I want to pray. We don't usually pray at the end of a sermon because it's not a transition time, but I do want to pray, you know, and thank God for what he's done for us in Christ Jesus. Let's take just a moment and just praise him for what he's done. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we are grateful for you. Jesus, thank you for leaving heaven's throne, clothing yourself in flesh so that you might taste death for every one of us, to take away our shame, to make us righteous again before you. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the truth of the living and active word of God. Would you reorient us to yourself 
empower us that we might be bold witnesses for your namesake and for your glory here in our city. I thank you for our church family. Thank you that everyone this morning is reminded of our salvation and how great it is. And if there's anyone here today that does not know you as Lord and Savior, I pray that that person would come to know you right now. Thank you for hearing our prayers. We pray this all in your good name. Amen.